0: All right. This morning, uh, we are going to talk. We're going to begin a brand new series. We're in the book of Galatians, and we're going to spend the next five weeks in this book. There's six chapters in Galatians. We're going to go through the whole thing, We're not going to cover every single verse, but we're going to cover every single main idea. And this morning we're in Galatians 1. But before we get into that, it's a very short message this morning in case you're looking at the clock and wondering, hey, are we going to make it by kickoff Uh, this morning? We are. Uh, But I do want to show you a video just highlighting a little bit about what this book is all about.
1: number of churches in the region of Galatia, where Paul had traveled on one of his missionary journeys. You can read the stories in the book of Acts. He wrote this important letter from a place of deep passion and frustration. Here's the backstory. Christianity began as a Jewish messianic movement in Jerusalem, but its message was for all humanity, and so it quickly spread beyond Israel. By Paul's time as a missionary, there were as many non-Jews as there were Jewish people in the Jesus movement. And this sparked a huge debate that we know about from the book of Acts chapter 15. Historically, the covenant people of God were focused in one ethnic group, Israel. And they were set apart by the practices commanded in the Torah, like circumcision of males, eating kosher, observing the Sabbath. And there were many Jewish Christians who believed that for all of these non-Jews to truly become a part of God's family, they needed to obey the laws of the Torah. And so some of these Jewish Christians ended up coming to the Galatians undermining Paul and demanding circumcision of all these male, non-Jewish Christians. And so many of them were. And when Paul found out, he was brokenhearted and angry. And this letter is the result. He first challenges the Galatians with his summary of the gospel message about the crucified Messiah. He then argues that this gospel is what creates the new multi-ethnic family of Jesus and Abraham. And then he shows how this gospel is what truly transforms people by the presence and He opens by expressing his bewilderment that the Galatians have embraced a different gospel. It's the one promoted by these Christians who badmouth Paul and demand circumcision. So Paul first defends the authenticity of his message and authority as an apostle. He was commissioned by the risen Jesus himself to go to the non-Jewish world. Remember the story from the book of Acts. Paul says it was only later that he went to Jerusalem to consult the other apostles like Peter (coughs) and James. And when he told them, wasn't requiring non-Jewish Christians to be circumcised or eat kosher. They were in full support, but this tension ran deeper. Peter had come to Antioch to visit and see all of these non-Jewish Christians, and he was eating and mingling with them. But when some of this Jerusalem opposition group showed up in Antioch, Peter caved under their pressure. He stopped eating with these uncircumcised Christians, and he was avoiding them. And so Paul confronted and accused Peter of hypocrisy, of not staying true the gospel. For Paul, demanding these new Christians to become circumcised and Torah observant, it's wrong headed for all kinds of reasons. First of all, because it's a betrayal of the gospel, or in his words, people are not justified by the works of the Torah, but rather by the faith of Jesus the Messiah. And we have faith in the Messiah Jesus. To be justified, or literally to be declared righteous, it's a rich Old Testament term for Paul. It's when God declares that someone is in a right relationship given, they're given a place in God's family, and they are being transformed by God's grace. And it's Paul's conviction that no one can be justified by observing the commands of the Torah, but only by the faith of Jesus. This is a dense phrase, and it could refer to Jesus' own faithfulness in living and dying on our behalf, or it could refer to our own trust and devotion (coughs) to Jesus. Either way, the point is clear. People are justified only through trusting in what God did for them through Jesus, not by what they do for themselves. At the heart of Paul's gospel is this claim that when people trust in the Messiah Jesus, what's true of him becomes true of them. His life, death, and resurrection become theirs. Or in his words, I've been crucified with the Messiah, and it's not I who come back to life, it's the Messiah living in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so the reason anyone That they are right with God or belong to Jesus' covenant family, it's not because they obeyed the laws of the Torah. It's only because of what Jesus did for them that they could never do for themselves. Now, this profound understanding of what Jesus accomplished, it has huge implications for who can now be included in God's covenant family and for what it means to live as a member of that family. So Paul first turns to the stories about Abraham in Genesis, how he was justified simply having faith by trusting in God's promise that one day all nations would find God's blessing through him and his offspring. God's purpose was always to have one large, multi-ethnic family of people who relate to him on the basis of faith, not on the laws of the Torah. But that raises an important question. Why did God give the laws of the Torah to Israel then? Here, Paul offers a very brief and dense explanation that he will later fill out in his letter to the Romans. He observes that the laws of the Torah were given to Israel at Mount Sinai long after God's promise to Abraham. And if you read the Torah carefully, he says, you'll see that God (coughs) always intended the laws to be a temporary measure. He says the laws had both a negative and a positive role. Negatively, the laws acted like a magnifying glass on Israel's sin. They exposed how Israel shared in the sinful human condition, constantly rebelling against God's law. And so the law, which is good, ended up pronouncing Israel guilty and all humanity with them. Or in his words, the laws imprisoned everyone under the power of sin. But the laws also had a positive role. They acted like a strict school teacher that kept Israel in line until the coming of the promised offspring of Abraham, the Messiah. And once the Messiah came, he fulfilled the purpose of the laws on Israel's behalf. Jesus was the faithful Israelite who truly loved God and And as Israel's king, he died to take the curse and consequence of Israel's failure into himself and bring redemption. And so now, through Jesus, the offspring of Abraham, God's blessing can come to all people, regardless of their ethnicity, social status, or gender. For Paul, requiring Torah observance from non Jewish Christians, it makes no sense. It's acting as if Jesus didn't fulfill God's promise or deal with our sins. It neglects the new freedom gained for us through Jesus and the gift of the Spirit. And it limits God's promise and blessing to one ethnic family. But Paul's opponents might argue, the laws of the Torah, they're a proven guide to living according to God's will. How will non-Jewish Christians learn this? Paul responds in chapters 5 and 6 by describing how Jesus' transforming presence through the spirit is the key. The laws of the Torah are good. They're wise, Paul says. In fact, they can all be summarized, as Jesus did, in the command to love your neighbor as But the laws, good as they are, they did not give Israel the power to obey them. In contrast, the good news is that Jesus did fulfill the laws on our behalf. And now he lives in us through the spirit, making his people into new humans who fulfill the law by loving others. So Paul goes on to contrast this old and new humanity. The habits of the old humanity are obvious. These are behaviors that dehumanize people, that destroy relationships and the whole community. And while the laws of the Torah prohibited these behaviors, Jesus actually put them to death on the cross. So when a person trusts in Jesus and lives in dependence on the Spirit, his life becomes theirs and produces what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. This is Jesus' way of life that he wants to reproduce in his family so that they become people of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But this fruit isn't automatic, Paul says. It requires cultivation, just like real fruit. Or in his words, if we live by the Spirit, we have to keep in step with the Spirit. This requires intentionality. We have to learn how to prune off our old habits and cultivate new ones. And as we do so, we find ourselves carried along by the Spirit, as Jesus reshapes our minds and hearts and makes us into people who love God and others. And in this way, Jesus fulfill what Paul calls the Torah of the Messiah. In the end, Paul concludes, this requirement for Christians to become Torah observant or be circumcised, it's an adventure in missing the point. What really matters is God's new creation, this new multi-ethnic family of the Messiah, people full of faith in Jesus who are learning to love God and others in the power of the Spirit. And that's what the letter to the Galatians
0: How'd you guys like my drawings? Wasn't that good? Yeah. If you believed I did that, I have some real estate to sell you after the service. <laughs> oh. Well, uh, I want to just uh, talk briefly in Galatians chapter 1 this morning and just highlight a few things. And we're going to just, uh, if you have a Bible and you want to turn there with me, it's Galatians chapter 1, 6 to 10. We're going to put it on the screen as well. It says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to, different, to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before... So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For, I am now see- for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If you're still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Okay, so the, the thing I want us to understand here is that there is only one gospel. There is only one one true gospel, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, of the hope that he offers, of the hope that he presents. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, right? And there's no, like, additional things added on that. And when we start to add things onto the gospel of Jesus Christ, we distort it so that it becomes a false gospel, so that it becomes not even true anymore, and I want to just point this out uh, real quickly. Here are some things that, that we as Christians and as believers sometimes try to add to the gospel. Uh, and here are some false gospels that are being preached in our world today. The first one is Jesus plus works. Jesus plus works. Uh, now, um, James, the book of James, if you read through that book, it talks about how works and faith correlate with one another and how they work together. And how works demonstrates faith. But this isn't like a which comes first, the chicken or the egg thing. It's, It's really clear in scripture that faith comes before works. That faith produces works. And that works are evidence of faith. And so we have to understand that our faith in Jesus is the only thing that saves us. It's not the good works that you do, 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 do. do. <laughs> oh, boy. It's not the effort that you put in. It's not the things that, that. Uh, what am I, five years old? <laughs> oh, boy. It's not the effort that you put put in. It's not the things that, that you do for Christ, that make you a believer in Christ. It's simply your faith in Christ. This is the reason why we had the Reformation. This is the reason why Martin Luther years ago nailed his 95 Thesis to the door of the church. This is the reason why we emphasize this so much is because if you add things to the gospel of Jesus Christ that you have to do alongside of Christianity, alongside of placing your faith in Christ, then you change what the gospel message is. And the the point of this is that Jesus is the only thing that could save us. right? If you could do it yourself, you wouldn't need Jesus. But because Jesus is the only thing that can save us, then we need to trust that he's the only thing that does save us. And adding to it other requirements. In Paul's day, it was circumcision. I'm glad that we're not having that argument anymore. I don't want to talk about that. Uh, but there are a lot of other things that we try to add to the gospel of Jesus Christ in the form of works that uh, still to this day, and even um, one of the biggest issues, I I mentioned the Reformation, that was this split between um, what ultimately became the Protestant church and uh, the Catholic Church, and and listen, I'm not here this morning to like disparage Catholicism, or or I know a lot of wonderful, godly people that are serving the Lord that are in the Catholic Church. But one of the things that they teach is that that faith and works are both part of the salvation process, and that's just not true according to Scripture. And and we're gonna look at this through this book. That's the emphasis of this entire first chapter: is that Jesus is the one that saves us. And I know that there are many people in this room that even maybe that was your background growing up, that uh, you came uh, from a Catholic church or from a Catholic background, and you might still have a lot of these values that, that you learned as a child. Can I tell you something? Faith in Christ is the only thing that saves us, period. Period right? And it produces works. It produces goodness. In fact, uh, we, we just saw in the video, we'll get to the fruit of the Spirit. All of those things are a result of Jesus' work in us. But if we're placing our hope in anything besides faith in Christ, then we're missing the point and we're promoting a false gospel. Here's the second thing, Jesus plus holiness. Now, I know that sounds completely contradictory, and yes, the work of Jesus in us, what he does inside of us, makes us holy. Uh, his, his transformative power in our lives, he, he justifies us to the Father because of his work on the cross. Now we are made righteous, we are made holy, and that's in a, a good and incredible thing, but that's not the holiness that I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fake holiness that we uh, rebrand legalism as holiness, okay, Uh, Now, this has been a huge thing in the Pentecostal church, and and that's one of the reasons why I want to talk about this today, because many of you came out of a background where it was Jesus plus if I do all the right things and behave all the right ways, and I don't act like the world around me, and um, I abstain from anything that could even be possibly perceived as a sin, then I will truly be a Christian. And, and what it really is, is it's, it's legalism under the guise of holiness. And maybe uh, in the past it was playing cards or going to movies or women couldn't wear pants. Or, you know, there are a lot of different rules that come along uh, with supposed holiness movements. But can I tell you something? Anything added to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Can I say it again for a second time? <laughs> That's not the gospel anymore. You're distorting it. You're turning it into something else. Now, I'm not saying that you can't have any personal convictions, that you can't uh, abstain from things that aren't explicitly uh, dictated to us in Scripture. That's fine if you want to do that, but don't turn that into the gospel message. And don't uh, take your convictions and your personal opinion and put that on somebody else when it's not in Scripture at all. Here's a perfect example in our culture today. Let's talk about drinking for a second, right? Everybody's favorite topic. Uh, now, <laughs> most of you know that that I don't drink personally, um, and uh, part of being... An uh, assemblies of God pastor is that we agree to to forego drinking, so i don 't drink any alcohol at all. Um, maybe some of you don 't know this. maybe some of you have offered me a beer in the past listen <laughs> that's fine if you've done that uh, I'm not offended by that in any way uh, but that's that's something that we commit to as as pastors it, it's not a scriptural mandate, okay and and personally I think our world would probably be better off if, if everybody abstained from alcohol. I think it's probably a good idea. I think it causes a lot more problems than it solves. But listen, this is a matter of conscience, not a matter of obedience. Okay? And, and that's what we're talking about here. So it, it's, it's one thing to have a conviction about something and to say, I'm not going to do this personally. It's another thing to say, this is a fundamental principle of being a follower of Christ, all right? And so we need to be able to separate those two things. Jesus plus our brand of holiness uh, or legalism is no longer the gospel. Here's the third one, Jesus and people-pleasing. Paul calls this out in this passage of scripture, and this is the hardest one for me. You know why? Because I like people, and I like to be liked by people, and if people don't like me, I just... I don't know if I can handle that. You know, it just bothers me so much when when people are mad at me and when people are upset with me. And you know what? Sometimes, being a pastor, you have to have really blunt conversations with people. Sometimes it's things that I I feel like the Holy Spirit is telling me that I need to say, you know, from up here, right? And and that's honestly a little bit easier than having a tough conversation one-on-one with somebody where you're, like, addressing something. Um, and, And listen, that is... One of the hardest things for me, and I hate it, but I do it. You know why? because people pleasing is not the reason that i 'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and being liked and being uh, appreciated by everyone while it, it may make me feel good it 's not what God has called me to do and and paul i don 't think he was uh, the apostle paul i don 't think he was Afflicted with the same burden. He was so blunt. I mean, if you read through his letters, he says some things so bluntly. He's just, he's in your face. And, and if you ever want to be offended, just, just read through Paul's letters to the churches. You'll, you'll find something to be offended about, something that, that will bother you. Um, but we don't put people pleasing in front of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know what? We talk about the hard things here in this church. We address the difficult issues. We preach through the whole of Scripture, even the tough verses that that are challenging. And we do that because we believe that people need to know the truth, and because the truth matters as well. And we're not going to let what people think about us affect what we believe. We're going to let that be dictated by the Word of God instead. Here's the last one. And this one is a subtraction. And that's when you take Jesus, but you subtract total surrender. All right. This is, this is the person that says, I want to live for Jesus on Sundays, but on the rest of my week, I don't want to be bothered by some of that stuff. Like, oh, I, I, I want to experience you know, the emotionalism of a worship service, and I want to hear a, a funny message, and, and I want to you know, be a part of a church because I want to have friends and stuff like that, but I don't really want to change any of my behavior. I don't really want that, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We're going to get to that towards the end of this series in Galatians chapter 5, where he's going to address some of the tough things. Um, And and he's saying, basically, if you're living and practicing these sins, then then you have no uh, claim as a believer. You're not part of the kingdom of God, right? He's very, very blunt about it. And, And here's the reality. If you take away the total surrender to Jesus, then you're not really a follower of Christ. If you're not willing to say, I'm giving you every part of my life, and I'm willing to let the Holy Spirit, convict me of sin and change my ideas of what I think is right or wrong and allow him to shape and mold me into the person that he wants me to be, then can we really say that we're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ? This message of faith in Christ is a call to total surrender and obedience. So as we close this morning, I want to ask you two questions. This is real simple what are you adding to your faith? What are you adding to your faith? What was not part of the gospel that you have somehow inserted in there that you're finding your righteousness in, that you're finding your hope in other than the saving work of Jesus Christ? What are you placing your faith in that isn't Christ? Is it your good works? Is it your, um, maybe something that, that you're doing as, as an act of holiness? Is it something that you've added that makes you feel superior to others because you're doing something a certain way, uh, whatever it might be, allow the Holy Spirit to strip that away from your identity. Who you are in Christ is because of what he's done for you, right? Your identity in Christ is about whose you are, not about your amazing personality or your Your wonderful abilities. Like, it's great that God has blessed you with those things, and it's great that you want to honor God with those things. But if your identity is in that rather than in the saving work of Jesus Christ, then you're missing the point. So, what are you adding to your faith that's not supposed to be there? And then the second thing is, what are you holding back? What are you holding back? What part of your life isn't totally surrendered to Jesus Christ? You know, I would say if we were to be completely honest, every single person in this room could answer that question and say, yeah, there's something in my life that I haven't totally surrendered to Christ, that I'm holding on to for myself, right? The call to follow Christ is to be crucified with him, to pick up our cross and follow Christ daily. It's every area of our life that's surrendered to him. That means our family, that means our job, that means our finances, means our hobbies, that means every single thing in our life. doesn't mean that you can't do anything that brings you personal enjoyment. In fact, uh, Scripture is clear that you're supposed to enjoy life and have fun uh, while you're living this life and, and, and you know, take pleasure in that. But at the same time, is every area of your life surrendered to Christ? Or are there still areas that you're holding back because of sin? Because of shame? Because of of just a um, personal selfishness that you don't want to give that area away to the Lord. And if we can honestly come before the Holy Spirit and say, okay, speak to me right now. Show me the truth. I believe that every single person in here, including me, that there's something in our life that we can surrender to him. That we can continue to die to ourselves, and to continue to be made more like Christ. As we close today, I want to just give an opportunity this morning. Maybe you're here and you've never uh, received the true gospel, that you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that you've never made a decision to follow him. Or maybe uh, you thought you have, but you've been kind of thinking of the gospel in a wrong way. and, And instead of placing your trust in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, you've placed your faith in other things. And I want to give you an opportunity to make a decision today. So I'm going to pray a prayer in just a little bit. And we're going to all pray that prayer together. But if, if you're praying that prayer for the first time and you're making a decision today, uh, after we're done praying, this, sometime this morning or this week, I want you to find somebody that's part of this church family and tell them about it. Tell them what God is doing in your life and, and, and share that with them as well. Can we stand together and pray this prayer together this morning? Would you just repeat after me as as a church, even if you're praying this for the very first time? Heavenly Father, I need you. I'm broken, I'm sinful, and I need a Savior. So I'm asking Jesus to come into my heart, to take over my life. I confess my sin and choose to follow you for all the days of my life. Make me a new creation in Christ Jesus. Amen. you know uh, Scripture tells us that when we when we pray that prayer, when we make that decision, when we choose to follow Christ that uh, it's like uh, a sheep that was lost that's now coming home. Uh, and and that all of heaven rejoices as a result of that decision uh, that was made that that lost sheep that was that was being found. And, and uh, you know that's just such an incredible thing. You need to share it with somebody. If you pray that prayer for the first time, talk to me afterwards, talk to one of our leaders, uh, talk to a friend, but but share that with them. Let them know what Christ is doing in your life. I'm going to close this in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your love. We know that you are a good God. And Lord, we just acknowledge that today. We thank you for everything that you're doing in this world. We thank you that you're on the throne, that you're in control, and that we can trust you uh, no matter what. Lord, we just we lift up uh, these next couple of weeks to you, Lord, trusting that that you are good, and we know that, um, that you work all things for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And so, Lord, we declare that promise over every life here this morning. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. amen.